Well, good morning. My name is Matthew, one of the elders here. Uh, just by way of announcement, we sent out a note on Thursday asking the congregation to pray for us because we were taking an elder retreat. So I just want to say thank you for your prayers. We had a wonderful retreat. We went up to, took a drive all the way up to Timberline and spent time praying together. We made a lot of decisions, surprisingly, which oftentimes doesn't happen in those kinds of retreats. We ended up just talking about stuff, but we made a lot of decisions and excited to roll some of that stuff out at the member meeting coming up on February 9th. So again, thanks for praying. When I was a teenager, um, I grew up in the mountains, and a lot of guys, were, were when they got their first car, they were getting these, these nice big trucks. My friend Derek had this big lifted Toyota Tacoma. I had other friends that had big lifted Ford F-150s, and so I really wanted a big truck like that. But I ended up with a single cab, two-wheel drive Ford Ranger. And the suspension was such that the back of the truck was even pointed up a little bit. So I took it upon myself that I was going to trick this Ford Ranger out. And by trick it out, I meant go to mall kiosks and buy different trinkets to make your car cool, like a big sticker across the windshield that says, Ford. (laughs) As if you didn't know. I remember one thing in particular, I I put an exhaust system on this car. Okay, this was a 2.2 liter inline four with a Flowmaster on it, all right? It sounded more like a Honda than it did a, a truck. And another thing I did is I, it was, a, it was a stick shift, and I thought that if I took the shift knob off and replaced it with a carbon fiber one, I would gain some extra horsepower by losing those two ounces of weight. But I put it on crooked. And so I tried to take it off, and I remember leaning over my truck and trying to pull this thing off, and it finally came off, and I punched myself in the face so hard that I think I was unconscious for a few seconds. But the point is, at the end of the day, it was still just a Ford Ranger. As much as I tried to make it something else, it was still just a single cab Ford Ranger. There's a quote from C.S. Lewis in Weight of Glory It has always been intriguing to me. He says, It would seem that our Lord finds our desires not too strong, but too weak. He says, We are half-hearted creatures, fooling around with drink and sex and ambition when infinite joy is offered us. Like an ignorant child who wants to go on making mud pies in a slum because he cannot imagine what is meant by the offer of a holiday at the sea, we are far too easily pleased. What were you made for? What was I made for? We were made to worship. We were made to know God. Genesis 1.26 says, Then God said, Let us make man in our image after our likeness, and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea, and over the birds of the heavens, and over the livestock, and over all the earth, over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him, male and female, he created them. You were made in the image of God. You were made to be with God. It's like the song we always sing from City of Light, minor days that God has numbered, I was made to walk with him. You were made in the image of God, and you were made to be with God. And so that's what we're going to talk about here in this brief series on worship. So if you have your Bibles, we're going to be in Romans chapter 12, verses 1 and 2. And a bunch of other places. 
This is not the normal way that we generally preach. We generally just preach through books of the Bible. And for one reason that we do that is that it's actually easier. It's easier to just open your Bible to Ruth chapter 1 and explain what it means. To do a topical sermon on Romans and on, uh, on worship is a lot harder. But you're welcome. I love you. I did it for you. So. <laughs> Romans chapter 12, verses 1 and 2. I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Do not be conformed to this world, but but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. Would you pray with me? Father, we're grateful for your word. We're grateful for this truth that we were made to know you and worship you and be with you. We ask, God, that every heart would be enamored with the beauty and glory of Jesus Christ, that through the preaching of your word, we would behold him even more. We ask for your help in Jesus' name. Amen. So there's at least two different ways that we can talk about worship. We could, talk, we could say on a macro level and on a micro level, or better, we could say worship as all of life and worship as, some, or, and worship as something that we come to do. And both are important for us to understand how God has made us. But just because we're going to show that worship is all of life doesn't mean that worship is also something that we do specifically when we gather corporately. We're going to be using the term in two different ways. There can be a tendency in some circles to say that because worship is all of life, that therefore corporate worship is optional or of less value or unnecessary or something like this. But it's not the case, and we're going to try to see that. So let's start with, by talking about worship as all of life. As we've already said, you were made in the image of God, which means that you were made to worship God. Or to put another way, you were made to delight in the glory of God. You were made to delight in the glory of God. Exodus 34, 14 says this. God says, you shall not worship another God. For the Lord, whose name is Jealous, is a jealous God. In other words, God demands that you and I give him all of our worship. If we give any other worship to another, he's jealous And if we don't repent, he will break forth in wrath. Deuteronomy chapter 4 verse 24 says, For the Lord your God is a consuming fire, a jealous God. You know, C.S. Lewis talks about this idea of the jealousy of God in his book, The Reflections on the Psalms. And he says that it was one of his greatest obstacles to believe in the God of the Bible because when he reads the God of the Bible in the Psalms, there's this constant demand from God to be praised. And Lewis remarks that it almost sounds like God was a woman, a vain woman, who was seeking compliments. But God is the most beautiful and glorious being in the entire universe. It would only be a vain woman wanting compliments if it wasn't completely true. But it is completely true. God is the most beautiful and glorious being in the entire universe. Being made in the image of God means that you were made to delight in the glory of God. Being made in the image of God means that you were made to delight in the glory of God because God himself delights in his own glory. 
God himself delights in his own excellencies. So to be made in his image, to be like him, is to also delight in his excellencies and in his glory. C.S. Lewis solved the problem, and he broke through to the beauty of God's self-exaltation, as he called it. He saw something very different at the end. This is a quote from Reflections on the Psalms. My whole more general difficulty about the praise of God depended on my, on my absurdity to deny to us as regards the supremely valuable that what we delight to do, what indeed we can't help doing about everything else we value. I think we delight to praise what we enjoy because the praise is not merely expresses but completes the enjoyment. It's the appointed consummation. In other words, he's saying, we praise the thing that we ultimately delight in. We delight, if we, we, when we delight in our spouse, we delight to talk about them. So he's saying to delight in God is to bring forth and come forth in praise. He says it's a, it's a pointed consummation. Lewis saw that praising God was the consummation of joy in God. But back to Romans chapter 12. What is Romans 12, 1 and 2 referring to? It says that the word sacrifice, and the word sacrifice usually means that something that is dead, but he says it's a living sacrifice to make sure that we know he's not talking about a literal human sacrifice, I suppose. He's talking about a literal living sacrifice. A sacrifice was you know, usually laid on the altar and parts of it were eaten by the priests and, and so on and so forth that had no more existence. But that's not what he means. He doesn't mean something that ceases to have an existence. Because at least three times in Romans chapter 6, he speaks of presenting our bodies or our members to God like this. And in every case, it's so our members, our, 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 our arms, our legs, our tongues, our eyes, our sexual organs would become instruments of righteousness. So the sacrifice is not just a living sacrifice. It's a sacrifice that's moving and doing and going about things in the world. It's your, it's, it's your life. It's your life. So how is it a sacrifice? Because if this is our spiritual act of worship, to present our bodies as living sacrifices, we need to ask ourselves, in what sense is it a sacrifice? And I think the best way to answer the, connect, the question is to see the connection between verses 1 and 2. Verse 1 talks about sacrifices and worship. Verse 2 talks about your mind being renewed and doing the will of God. The explicit link to show you that Paul is thinking this way is the repetition of the word acceptable. Acceptable comes up in verse 1, and acceptable comes up in verse 2. Present your bodies holy and acceptable to God, And then use your renewed mind to prove what the will of God is, what is good, acceptable, and perfect. It says, be transformed by the renewing of your mind. The the focus is not at first cleaning the outside of the thing. It's not focused on cleaning the outside of the object, but it's talking about cleaning the inside of the object first. In other words, transformation starts from a new mind, starts from the renewing of your mind. To present yourself as a living sacrifice is to change the way that you think about things. So the heart of being a Christian, 
The heart of giving your body and your life as a living sacrifice, as an act of spiritual worship, begins with a profoundly renewed mind. It doesn't just mean to think clearly, though it does mean to think clearly, but it means to assess what is true, to value what is accurate, it means to approve, it means to treasure what is good, acceptable, and perfect. That's an act of worship. Paul will say it like this in Ephesians, the same idea, I think. Ephesians chapter 4, 20 through 24. But that is not the way you learned Christ, assuming that you had heard about him when you were taught in him. As the truth is in Jesus, to put off your old self, which belongs to your former manner of life and is corrupt through deceitful desires, and to be renewed in the spirit of your minds and to put on the new self, created after the likeness of God in true righteousness and holiness. So one of the things that we see here is we come to a a dilemma of sorts. Because if you're made to worship, if that's what you're made to do, if you're made in the image of God and you're made to worship, it says that we need to think God's thoughts after him. But that's the dilemma, of course, because this requires, this way of living requires the new birth. It requires the work of God on your heart. Because we're made in the image of God, but just like our first father, Adam, our hearts are corrupt and sinful. Minor days that God has numbered, I was made to walk with him, yet I look for worldly treasure and forsake the king of kings. But mine is hope in my redeemer. Though I fall, his love is sure. So practically, first it means that you need to be converted. You need to repent of your sins You need to believe the gospel of Jesus Christ so he can put his spirit within you. He can put his law and his precepts on your heart. And then second, practically, it means that we begin each day with asking God to show us what is good, what is acceptable, what is pure. It means that we show the value and worth of God in our lives by thinking God's thoughts after him. It means saying to God, take my body, take my mind, take my soul, and use it to show the world your value and worth in my life. It means saying to God, make my body an instrument for your glory today. That is your spiritual worship. All of life is your spiritual worship. Jesus will tell us in Matthew chapter 5, let your light so shine before men that they may see your good deeds and give glory to your Father in heaven. All of life is the outshining of what you truly value and what you truly cherish and what you truly treasure. And because of that, all of life is worship. All of life is showing what is actually ultimately valuable to you. Everybody worships. Everybody worships. And you worship by showing the world around you what is ultimately valuable to you. If sex is ultimately valuable to you, then you'll be consumed with your looks. You'll be consumed with what other people think about you. If money is what you worship, you'll be consumed with your career. You'll be consumed with your job. You'll be consumed with always getting ahead in life. If you worship your family, then everything that you do, everything you think about will just be about your family. Everybody worships. And life is showing what, you, what is supremely valuable to you. 
But there's also something else about worship. You become like what you worship. If you worship status, then you'll become an egomaniac. N.T. Wright, in his book, Simply Christian, says it like this. You become like what you worship. That's what I just said. (laughs) When you gaze in awe, admiration, and, and wonder at something or someone, you begin to take on something of the character of the object of your worship. But let's go to the scriptures. Psalm 115, verses 4 to 8. Their idols are silver and gold, the work of human hands. They have mouths but do not speak, eyes but do not see, ears but do not hear, noses but do not smell. They have hands but do not feel, feet but do not walk, and they do not make a sound in their throat. Those who make them become like them. Those who make them become like them, the psalmist says, so do all who trust in them. That's what the psalmist is saying. The psalmist is saying that you become like what you worship. And if, so let's tie this whole thing together. If you are made in the image of God, and Paul is calling on us in Romans chapter 12 and in Ephesians chapter 4 to renew our minds This is our act of spiritual worship. When we worship God, when we submit our our lives, our bodies to God, we are becoming like him again. We're being restored to the way that we were made. And that's the first thing that we want to say this morning. Everybody worships. The second thing that we want to say is we want to talk about the nature of corporate worship. So all of life is worship, yes, and yet God commands us in his word, in his scriptures, to gather corporately, to gather together to worship. Martin Luther found that corporate worship was a powerful awakening um, force in his spiritual fire. He said this, he says, at my home, in my house, there is no warmth or vigor in me, but in the church, when the multitude is gathered together, a fire is kindled in my heart, and it breaks its way through. Hmm. I'm sure that's a little hyperbolic, that there's nothing going on in his house. But the way that he describes the power and the value and what happens when we sing and we come together corporately, and so many of us know what you're talking about, have experienced it together, where we're dry throughout the week, or, or today when we finish singing Living Hope and we just sang it a cappella and we just heard all of our voices, it invigorates a certain kind of spiritual fire in us that we were made to come together corporately to worship God together. Because God did not just save a random group of individuals, God saved a people. God saved a nation Israel, God saved his people, the church, and he calls them to gather together and to worship him corporately. Donald Whitney, who's written a lot on spiritual discipline, says, there's an element of worship in Christianity that cannot be experienced in private worship or even by watching worship. There are some graces and blessings that God gives only in the meeting together with other believers, end quote. When we behold Jesus, Paul will say in 2 Corinthians 3.19, he'll talk about us beholding Jesus together. He says that we all are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another. When we behold the beauty and the glory of Jesus Christ 
together, it says it's a transforming effect on us, that we're going from one degree of glory to another, beholding it together. There is such a message in pop evangelicalism that it's just you, your Bible, and the Holy Spirit. It's not true. God made you to worship him corporately with other believers, other Christians that you've covenanted with. We behold it together. One of my favorite places, because I experienced this, is Psalm 122. I was glad when they said to me, let us go to the house of the Lord. It brought delight to the psalmist. It brought joy to the psalmist when it was said to him, let us go together to the house of the Lord. You ever had that happen in the moment of a, of a Christian worship service? A moment that I was describing a moment ago that, that happened for me when we were singing at the end of Living Hope. I was just freshly encouraged in my spirit. Or that moment when you're sitting under the preached word and something just comes at you like a force. It just seems like God is speaking directly to you in that moment. Keller says that sanctification oftentimes can happen on the spot, he says, as we sit under the gospel being preached or as we engage in corporate worship. He goes on, there are times, may God make many of them, when the Holy Spirit takes the scripture read, the prayer spoken, the chorus sung, or the truth preached, and presses it right to the point of our need. It not merely informs our Christian walk, but heals us in the moment. When we join in corporate worship, God loves not only to change our minds, but to irrevocably change our hearts on the spot. That's powerful. That there's something that actually happens in the preaching moment, or in the singing moment, or in the moment that the prayers are being read. That doesn't happen necessarily when you're listening to the sermon on your podcast later in the week. I'm not poo-pooing that. I don't know if that's a, I should, should have said it that way, but it's not to say don't listen to sermons on your podcast, on podcasts. I do it all the time. But it's saying that God, through his Holy Spirit, oftentimes can show up in the moment of the preaching event itself. And he says here, listen to Keller again. When we join in corporate worship, God loves not only to change our minds, but to also irrevocably change our hearts on the spot. We'll expand more on that next week. But for now, I want to draw our attention and think about this just a little bit deeper. We're thinking about this this nature of corporate worship. And it's this. That God himself dictates how he is to be worshipped. God is the one that dictates how he is to be worshipped. You can turn in Exodus if you want. Exodus 35. we read just three verses. Poor Sarai this week. She came down and I had listed on there that we're going to do Exodus 37 to 50. And she came to my office and she's like, we're going to go Exodus 37 to 50. And I said, yes. And so apparently she went out for the rest of the day trying to figure out where Exodus 41 through 50 were in the Bible. (laughs) Oh, no, 40. (laughs) Moses assembled all the congregation of the people of Israel and said to them, 
These are the things that the Lord has commanded you to do. Six days work shall be done, but on the seventh day you shall have a Sabbath of solemn rest, holy to the Lord. Whoever does any work on it shall be put to death. You shall kindle no fire in all your dwelling places on the Sabbath day. You'll remember in thinking over Exodus that at the end of chapter 34, Israel, having committed idolatry with the golden calf, was facing ruptured fellowship with God. But Moses had interceded for them effectively and secured forgiveness for God's people, and God had promised to go into the midst of Israel again. But before they can go on their journey, journeying towards the, uh, the promised land, these lengthy instructions are given to us. But if you remember, these instructions have already been given to us in chapters 25 through 31. And these instructions are regarding the requirements for all that needed to take place for the construction of the tabernacle and temple, and all the commandments that had to be implemented. So here, what we have is the same material repeated almost verbatim again in Exodus chapter 36 all the way to 39. Each item of the tabernacle, how it's to be furnished, how it's to be completed, and so on and so forth. So in a 40-chapter book, it's all about the redemption of God's people being coming out of the house of Pharaoh and so on. The Red Sea event, water in the wilderness, 10 chapters are given about the instructions for the tabernacle. Ten chapters are given about the instructions for the tabernacle. The glory of God is going to come down in Exodus chapter 40. God has said he's going to dwell and be in the midst of his people. But before he's going to do that, before God's glory is going to come down in Exodus chapter 40, he tells them how he is to be approached. He tells them how he's to be worshipped. God dictates how God is approached. God dictates how God is to be worshipped. Listen to the end of Exodus chapter 40. Then the cloud covered the tent of meeting, and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. And Moses was not able to enter the tent of meeting because the cloud settled on it, and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. Throughout all their journeys, whenever the cloud was taken up from the temple, the people would set it out. But if the cloud was not taken up, they did not set out till the day that it had been taken up. The point is this. The people were commanded to assemble. They were about to go off into the wilderness and wander for a season as they journeyed towards the promised land. And God says that his presence was going to go with them. He said even his glory was going to be present among them. And he gave very specific instructions about how he would be approached and how he would be worshipped. In fact, if we look at two different places, you can turn to Leviticus chapter 10. Some of the most challenging aspects of judgment in the Old Testament are when people did not worship God the way that God said to be worshipped. Nadab and Abihu. Now Nadab and Abihu, the sons of Aaron, each took his censer and put a fire in it and laid incense on it and offered unauthorized fire before the Lord, which he had not commanded them. And fire came out from before the Lord and consumed them, and they died before the Lord. What happened there? They sought to worship God in a way that God had not commanded them to worship him. And he broke out in judgment. Or 2 Samuel chapter 6. This is a, a, a celebratory day in the life of Israel. David is the king 
And as David's first act as, of leadership is he's going to restore the worship of God to the center of Israel. And if you remember, the Ark of the Covenant had been off in another place for, for, under Saul's uh, leadership. And David says, our first thing, the first thing we're going to do is we're going to go get the Ark of the Covenant and we're going to bring it up to Jerusalem so that the worship of God is not just symbolically, the worship of God is actually at the center of Israel. That's David's first act. It's a day of celebration. Listen, starting in verse 5. 2 Samuel 6, starting in verse 5. And David and all the house of Israel were celebrating before the Lord with songs and lyres and harps and tambourines and cymbals. And when they came to the threshing floor of Nacon, Uzzah put out his hand to the ark of God and took hold of it because the oxen had stumbled. And the anger of the Lord was kindled against Uzzah, and God struck him down there because of his error, and he died there beside the ark of God. And David was angry because the Lord had broken out against Uzzah, and that place is called Perez Uzzah to this day. And David was afraid of the Lord that day, and he said, how can the ark of the Lord come to me? Uzzah, in a a seeming act of trying to save the day, right, puts his hands out because the oxen stumble. He's trying to prevent the Ark of the Covenant from falling on the ground. But did you catch what it said? The oxen had stumbled. Is that how God said the Ark of the Covenant was to be carried? It had rings on the sides of it. And, and poles were supposed to go through it, and it was to be carried and not touched. It was put on some cart. That's not the way that God prescribed himself to be worshipped. And it resulted in his judgment, his anger, it says in verse 8. His anger breaking out. So God has and does prescribe how he's to be approached and how he's to be worshipped when we corporately assemble. He commands us to assemble, and as we've seen just now in a couple examples in the Old Testament, the judgment of God is oftentimes there because the people do not approach God as he commanded. And we have no reason to think that as we turn the pages to the New Testament that God has not also prescribed how he's to be worshipped. Look at the beautiful description that we read of the earliest church. The earliest church in Acts. I won't read the whole thing again, but I'll read some from starting at verse 42. They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and the fellowship. They're devoted to the teaching of the apostles. That's essentially what we're still doing today. We're devoting ourselves to the scriptures, to the teaching that's been handed down to us from the apostles, to the breaking of bread and the prayers. Commentators are split if the breaking of bread is actually communion or if the breaking of bread is actually, if it's just a meal. It says, awe came upon every soul. Many signs and wonders were being done through the apostles, and all who believed were together, and all, they had all things in common. They were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing them to the poor, and all, as all as any had need. They were attending the temple together. They were breaking bread in their homes. They were receiving their food with glad and generous hearts. They were praising God and having favor with all the people. And the Lord was adding to their number day by day those that were being saved. Wow. Hebrews chapter 10, verse 24 and 25 say this. Let us consider 
how to stir one another to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together as it is the habit of some, but encouraging one another all the more as you see the day drawing near. So think this through for a moment here. The writer of Hebrews has now issued a command, and the command is to not neglect meeting together, okay? So there it is. Some of you need to hear that as a habit of some, but if you're here today, then you probably don't have that problem, and the person's not here today, well, obviously they've neglected to meet together, so they don't get to hear this encouragement. But if we're commanded to meet together, we're commanded to assemble as God's people, we must ask, what do we do when we assemble? Because God has told you that you need to come and gather on the Lord's Day, to come gather on Sunday, come gather once a week, and not neglect doing this as a habit of some. So then the question is, what do we do when we gather? It would seem to me that as elders and pastors and leaders, the things that we lead us to do on Sunday morning should be the things that God has laid out for us in his word for us to do. Because when we corporately gather together, we are binding all of our consciences to do it together. So if I say we're all going to go dance around the room and we're going to... I I don't have a good example right now. I wish I would have thought this one through. (laughs) Something that's not laid out for us in scriptures, I would be binding our conscience to do it. But what does the New Testament tell us to do? It's not rocket science, folks. Preaching. Singing. Praying. Baptizing taking communion together, the public reading of scripture together. It says it talks about fellowshipping together. It talks about taking a collection together. As I read through the New Testament, those are the kinds of things that the New Testament is telling us to do. And today is one of those days that we get to do all of them because we get to have a baptism today. Just kidding. No, we really are. <laughs> God has prescribed how he's to be worshipped. He's prescribed how he's to be worshipped in the Old Covenant. He's prescribed how he's to be worshipped in the New Testament. Devoting ourselves to preaching, corporately singing together, praying together, baptizing together, taking communion together, reading scripture together, and it even says take a collection together. But something is different, as we draw to a close here. Something is different about the nature of how we worship. John chapter 4, Jesus says this. He says, but the hour is coming, and now is here, when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth. For the Father is seeking such people to worship him. God is spirit, and those who worship him must worship in spirit and in truth. You see, in the old covenant, God prescribed how he was to be worshipped. He was to be worshipped at a particular place. They were to go to the tabernacle where the Ark of the Covenant was. They were to make sacrifices there, assuaging their guilt and their sin. But now God says, I'm to be worshipped in a person. I'm to be worshipped in a person. Earlier in the Gospel of John, it'll say that the Word of God became flesh and dwelt among us. And you know, of course, that word for dwelt among us means to tabernacle among us. That God no longer dwells 
in the tabernacle. He no longer dwells in the temple, but God himself dwelt among us and commands us to worship him now in the person of Jesus Christ. True worshipers will worship in spirit and in truth. Hmm. Who's truth in the Gospel of John? Jesus describes himself as the way, the truth, and the life. Jesus tells us in his high priestly prayer that he's going to go and he's going to send his spirit to us. So when the Father says that he's desiring people to worship in spirit and truth, he's saying he's desiring people to worship in his Son. He's desiring people to worship in his Son. Jesus answered them in John chapter 3, Truly I say to you, unless one is born of water and the Spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. That which is of flesh is flesh, but that which is born of the Spirit is spirit. The wind blows where it wishes, and you hear its sound, but you do not know where it comes from. So it is with everyone who is born of the Spirit. So friends, this morning, and for every week, our vision statement as a church is to celebrate and display the beauty and the glory of Jesus Christ. We worship God now corporately in a person. Let's pray together.